Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the six, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable. So said the White House counsel, Patrick Cipollone, on January 6th to White House staffer Cassidy Hutchinson. The 26-year-old former deputy to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Hutchinson presented some of the most jaw-dropping testimony yet to the January 6th committee, recounting how Trump was informed that morning that supporters of his with guns had gathered for his rally but were being refused admission because the weapons would be picked up by the metal detectors, or mags as they were known, that are always present for an event with the president. Trump in turn demanded that the mags be removed, saying, according to Hutchinson, they're not here to hurt me. And when later informed that the rioters were shouting, hang Mike Pence, Trump purportedly said that Pence, quote, deserved it. Trump, of course, has denied Hutchinson's sworn testimony, calling her, quote, a total phony, and some parts of what she had to say is now being disputed by the Secret Service. Has her account strengthened the case for the prosecution of Trump? And what more does the committee have in store? We'll talk to one of the panel's witnesses, British documentarian Alex Holder, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So there were so many nuggets in Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony that it's kind of hard to keep them straight. But if you go to the sort of main ones that, you know, the White House counsel feared that the president was going to be charged with crimes about the events of January 6th, that Trump was informed that there were weapons that supporters had brought to Washington that day and didn't care and encouraged them to go to the Capitol, encouraged people with weapons to go to the Capitol. And, of course, that um, folks after the fact, multiple folks were seeking pardons. It all sort of adds up and once again raises the question, can DOJ not do something at this point? For Months and months now, uh, we've basically been saying that like seditious conspiracy is not really something that the Justice Department would be able to charge against Trump. It's just too too many hurdles, too hard to prove. First Amendment protections, you know, I still think it is a, you know, a very big uh, challenge for him to be able to, even with this blockbuster testimony and all of the things you just mentioned. But I think they have gotten a little bit closer, and I think they've gotten far enough along this road of potential seditious conspiracy charges that the Justice Department has to actually conduct a full-blown investigation into that. Because he—what did he say? What's the, the, the money quote here? You know, I don't fucking care that they have weapons. Let my people in. They can march from here to the Capitol. And— There's the whole question of imminence. There is a high bar for seditious conspiracy because of those uh, First Amendment considerations. And and that bar has to do with, you know, imminence, Uh, you know, where the words that he used, the, you know, the incitement would that imminently lead to violence. And this is a little closer to that. Yeah. As you pointed out, Mike, armed and dangerous crowd. Trump knew they were armed and dangerous. He had a clear intent to send them up to the Capitol and moreover to accompany them. And he was clearly warned in advance that he was crossing legal lines that and there are at least two incidents in which we know he was clearly warned. The first is that the White House counsel 
wanted his speech edited to take out many of the inciting words about violence against Mike Pence and about violence against the Congress. He was told that those words were dangerous and the counsel's office asked him to have them stricken from his speech. And second of all, we know that the White House counsel begged Meadows deputy Cassidy Hutchinson not to go to the U.S. Capitol, that they would be breaking every law possible that they could imagine. They would be charged with all sorts of crimes. If Cipollone said that to Cassidy Hutchinson, he almost certainly said it to Meadows and said it to multiple other people. And when and if the committee manages to tie him saying that specifically to Trump or to anyone who would relay it to Trump, the net is going to close in even more on Trump in terms of. I guess, you know, that raises the key question. Are we going to get Cipollone's testimony, sworn testimony. He has resisted so far. He was the White House counsel. So he's, you know, got presumably uh, as strong a claim of executive privilege as there could be. But it's not his claim to the president, first has to of invoke all. It. Right. So first of all, I don't know that Trump has invoked uh, executive privilege on his behalf. And I also believe that President Biden could say, Uh, There is no executive privilege or I'm waiving that privilege. You can go up there and talk. And, you know, it is true that it is exceedingly rare for White House staff who are at that level, that close to the president or even a former president to testify before congressional committees for separation of powers reasons, for um, making sure that the president gets frank, you know, is able to get frank advice, but also isn't distracted by these kinds of congressional investigations. But it's not unprecedented. And someone right, I was well, talking to earlier. Yeah. H.R. Bob Haldeman testified during Watergate. Now, of course, He had a reason to do so because he wanted to dispute what John Dean had previously testified to. So Cipollone, if he wants to dispute Cassidy Hutchinson, can go up and do so. The question is, will the committee? I mean, I'm a little surprised, actually, that they haven't subpoenaed him at this point. Why not subpoena him? Yeah, I don't I don't know either unless they just want to win the PR battle here with him, knowing that uh, he's not going to come up and testify. And but it seems to me that especially after Cassidy Hutchison's explosive testimony yesterday in which she invoked uh, Cipollone's name over and over again and these extraordinary things that he said, you really want him to testify in per- live and in person. So there are two reasons. The first is that the the committee may clearly have come to the conclusion that they wouldn't win a subpoena war with with Cipollone for precisely those separation of powers, executive privilege reasons. They're unclear that they would win. And they're also unclear about the amount of time it would take them to win. Um, So that that may be the reason that they haven't done it. But the second reason, well, let me the second reason might be even more important, which is that we're talking about him testifying before the committee. There's a different group of people he might be testifying in front of or being deposed by right now, and that is the Department of Justice, which has a much stronger ability to get him to testify before them. And I think that this might be a case where the committee has essentially backed off and said, DOJ, you go for it. Well, but they haven't, at least in turn, at least as that far as know. their public statements, because <laughs> Liz Cheney this morning, I noticed at like 530 in the morning, she tweeted Pat Cipollone has to come forward and testify. Whatever institutional prerogatives are are, are outweighed by his testimony. And I also wonder about the legal fight. If President Biden were to say, I waive all executive privilege here, I guess the question is, does Pat Cipollone want to testify or not? He may not want to testify because he feels that as a former White House counsel, he wants to, he doesn't want to set, he doesn't want to be responsible for setting that bad precedent in his view. But if the president of the United States says, it's fine, go for it, you know, that gives him cover. This is not someone who who is a fan of the former president. But I actually think that uh, Victoria's point about DOJ, um, you know, trumps all of that, because once they have Cassidy Hutchinson testifying that Cipollone said we could be charged with every crime imaginable, and he, you know, was laying out 
specific federal statutes to her. And as you point out, presumably he would have said this to the president himself. Then I think DOJ has to, you know, forget executive privilege. There is an on point Supreme Court ruling Nixon uh, versus USA that says when there's, you know, criminal conduct at issue, <laughs> that takes precedence over executive privilege because DOJ needs the best evidence it can get in a criminal inquiry. Just a couple of other points, uh, you know, worth making about this. To me, you know, there's so many, you know, mental images that we will take away from Hutchinson's testimony. But the one that really sticks out is Mark Meadows just sitting there scrolling through his iPhone while rioters are at the U.S. Capitol shouting, hang Mike Pence. I and mean, being, being reminded that a buddy of his was there in the in the crosshairs. Yeah. Well, that's like, the one th- point that he's, oh, really, Jim's on the phone? Oh, yeah, let me talk to him. I mean, I, it just, you know, you can almost just see well, you heard her frustration going in. Mark, do you realize what's going on? And he's just sitting there. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah. He doesn't want to do anything, he being Trump. And by the way, it doesn't want to do anything also about Trump saying that he agrees uh, with the people who think that Mike Pence should be hanged. And Sipalone uh, goes in there to see Meadows. What does Meadows say? Uh, he doesn't want to do anything. And Cipollone says, Mark, something needs to be done or people are going to die and the blood is going to be on your fucking hands. And that gets him out of his chair, (laughs) I guess, also, but barely. Yeah. Let me also, if we uh, remind our listeners of one other crime we haven't actually mentioned so far in this podcast, and that is witness tampering. I was going to say, yeah, witness tampering. We now know that at least... One of the witnesses who was called or emailed, I can't remember which one it was, Cassidy Hutchison. And in, in one of the, uh, the messages, uh, it was, uh, first of all, Trump reads the transcripts. And then Trump wanted, wanted the witness to know, quote, he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you will do the right thing when you go in uh, for your uh, deposition. So the person who called the witness is invoking Trump's name directly, which means that there's certain, certainly some evidence that Trump is orchestrating this witness tampering effort, which suggests that he's got real exposure potentially in that area as well. Now, we should point out that some of what Hutchinson has to say is being disputed by the Secret Service. And no, no, by unnamed sources close to the Secret Service. Okay, all right. Well, unnamed, but reliably reported by multiple news organizations. At least the Secret Secret Service is telling somebody unnamed close to the Secret sources Service sources close to the Secret is Service. telling <laughs> folks that Tony Orinato and Bobby Engel uh, dispute the graphic account from Hutchinson about uh, Trump lunging to the steering wheel to demand that they drive him to the Capitol that day and then going for the clavicle of Angle when he tried it to resist him. Can I just pop in? Because first of all, all she's testified to is that Ornato told her that's what happened. Yes. She's not testifying that that's actually what happened. Right. Right. So, now, so I, that's I, the first thing. I get thing. that. Right. But 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 as as a former committee staffer yourself, you get this mm-hmm. bombshell testimony about a violent assault by the president of the United States on another federal officer. You kind of want to know whether that's solid and nailed down before you present it to the American public. And I would have thought the committee should have interviewed Orinato and Engel before they had her testify to that, because that was as explosive a account of Trump's conduct as we've seen yet, certainly in keeping with many others previously. But... Him getting violent? Okay, I want to know what those two Secret Service folks have to say. And I don't see how they cannot or how the committee cannot at this point put them on. And if they're really going to dispute it, I mean, then that's going to chip away at Hutchinson's testimony. 
no, if Ornato disputes that he actually said that to her, right. yes. Right. Because, you know, that's but, that's but what Angle she, was right. sitting right there. I mean, they were they were right there in the room when Hutchinson said this account was relayed to her. So underlying it all is the truthfulness of this. Right. And it may be. And these guys may get up there, you know, maybe lying or the source close to the Secret Service may be lying, but they're law enforcement officers they're gonna have to testify under oath they should have to testify under oath at this point let's see what let's happens see what happens right, right. let's see okay. if they if they do the one kind of wild thing that i wanted to mention before we go that has not gotten much attention it was very brief was uh, liz cheney's questioning of michael flynn yeah she's asking him whether he believed that the violence on January 6th, the Capitol was justified or not. And, you know, he took a minute and a half with his lawyer to figure out what to say, and then he pleaded the fifth. Okay, fine. He's got a right not to incriminate himself. That is a, a right we all believe in. But I didn't understand that w when she asked him if he believes in the uh, peaceful transition of power in the United States of America, why he would have to take the fifth. Seems to me he could have said, yes, I believe in the peaceful transition of power without incriminating yeah, no, himself. I, actually, uh, yeah, I. Yeah, you, when you take the fifth, you usually take the fifth for everything. Yes, That's okay, the way exactly. It works. I, I find myself in the weird position <laughs> of actually being okay with what Flynn did there, although obviously it's a really bad look. Yeah. I, I love the way he doesn't even bother to articulate it, he just says the fifth. The fifth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you're going to say it that many times, you know. <laughs> right. I guess. Yeah. But also, Victoria, haven't you also, and we've discussed this previously yeah. on the podcast, had people wait, take you, the fifth? You did not. We did not make a public spectacle of them. The you didn't make a public spectacle of it. You didn't force people to do it in public. It's a constitutional right. You get to do it. So the committee was like pushing things a bit there. Yeah, I yeah. Thought. I mean, look, they were, let me put it this way. No brief, they, by they, the way, they, for the, the whack um, job Michael Flynn, and right. who is a complete whack job. Let's right, just exactly. put that on the record at this and, point. And, and it may right. be that this sort of like, you know, persnickety protectiveness about, you know, people invoking the fifth and not subjecting them to sort of like a public rebuke for exercising their constitutional rights is, is a little old fashioned. And, you know, plenty of congressional committees have now, you know, gone right ahead with it. This is not the first committee that's uh, made a spectacle of someone invoking their Fifth Amendment rights. But I'm going to stand by my uh, my position that when someone exercises their constitutional rights, you shouldn't subject them to public uh, shame. Get ready for next year's Hunter Biden hearings in which we can expect people taking a Hunter Biden, I'm sure, taking yeah. the fifth. Uh, uh, I want to raise turn. one other little kind of uh, detail from the hearing that I'm really curious about, and it may be a rabbit hole. But Cassidy Hutchinson said that on at least two occasions on January 6th, she went up to Meadows to tell him something and he slammed the limousine door shut and continued in 25 minute conversations with people. Who and was he talking was... to? Exactly. Who was yeah. he talking to? The first thing that I thought was he was talking to Trump. First thing I thought was he was talking to someone from the Proud Boys or uh, <laughs> or or something. And also the Roger Stone stuff. Remember right. the and what's going on at the Willard. And there's a discussion about yeah. Meadows going over to the Willard and yeah. Cassidy Hutchinson saying, you know, I don't think don't that's a go. really good idea for you. <laughs> but to he, go does over there. he doesn't yeah. go he over does there. Call. In the end, yeah. And he does call. So what were the conversations between Meadows and Roger Stone? Yeah. Uh, at, at the Willard. And does DOJ have the text messages at this point? Because presumably they were all doing encrypted apps, right? Signal and, you know, God knows what else. So those are not so easily retrievable. Except it's, it is actually against the Presidential Records Act to be using. Well, there is that. <laughs> yes. <of course>. Yeah. <laughs> the first criminal indictment Pesky under the Presidential law. Records Act. <laughs> right. Which I don't think has criminal penalties. Well, uh, <laughs> correctly. Right. Maybe, uh, yeah. uh, maybe, maybe it's time for it, too. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that'll be one of the committee's recommendations right? <laughs> <laughs> to criminalize the Presidential Records Act. All right. Lots to uh, talk about here. We've got a actual witness before the committee today, the British 
documentarian who has turned over lots of material to the January 6th committee. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Alex Holder, a uh, documentarian who has um, directed the upcoming documentary called Unprecedented, based on hours of exclusive access that he had to Donald Trump and his family, both in the months before the election in 2020 and after. Alex has since been a witness before the January 6th committee and has turned over much of his material. Alex, welcome to Skullduggery. Very, very happy to be here. It's an honor. Lots to go over here, but just sort of walk us through how you got into this in the first place, how you got access to the Trumps, what it was for, and how it worked out for you making this film. Sure. So I think the best way to start is also with the reason I love documentaries is is that we never know what's going to happen at the end. So what we sort of wanted to do at the beginning, I I think we, we still did. But in terms of the narrative and the through line, I don't think anyone could have predicted, or at least I didn't predict, that you know, the events that unfolded thereafter were, you know, what's going to happen. But in terms of the access, I was introduced, I'd been making a film for, for a year and a half about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I'd been interviewing lots of sort of high-profile people around that subject. And I had met somebody who had previously worked at the White House who was involved in that discourse. And I interviewed him and we sort of had a, you know, a good relationship. And we sort of built some, yeah, we built a relationship together. And he then, and we were talking about this idea. He knew the family about making a documentary about the Trump family. And, and this was sort of, I guess in some ways it was like right place, right time. And I think maybe in life, you, you sort of work very hard to, to get those opportunities, right? So I think, you know, I had sort of been building uh, sort of this, this documentary about the Middle East and you know, interviewed lots of different people. And eventually sort of potentials come from that. And so obviously I met this, uh, this individual who, introduced me to the family. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, people can be introduced to all sorts of different people. But I think the key thing here is why they wanted to participate in this project and what I sort of gave to them in this, uh, you know, to do this. And I think it was a few reasons. You know, one was that they were very, very confident they were going to win the election. I mean, the hubris was just absolutely remarkable. I mean, they were convinced it would be a repeat of 2016. The pollsters were all wrong. It would be a massive surprise. One of the big lines that, I, that was used by Don Jr. throughout the campaign was, let's make liberals cry again, which I was actually, you know, and I, we, you know, we can come back to that because I always found that quite an interesting and, and quite a strange thing to say because well, we can come back to that. But the point was, is that they certainly believe they were going to win. The second is that I was foreign and here was an opportunity to have somebody who didn't have any skin in the game, didn't have an axe to grind, essentially. That was going to look at this from a sort of, I guess, a different perspective and showcase them winning the election. So, sure, why not? And then maybe the third reason that I always say is my British charm perhaps helped. <laughs> what was your pitch to Trump? I mean, the pitch was, was, was essentially I wanted to understand who they were as people. You know, they had always complained about the coverage that they were getting in the US. They were always complaining about the fake news media and all that. So let's try and understand who they are as people. So the series isn't just about the election campaign and the events that took place after the election and January 6th. Obviously, that's the main thrust. But there's also this really fascinating portrait into who the, these people are as characters. And I'm speaking specifically about Donald Trump Jr., uh, Ivanka Trump, and Eric Trump, and then the president himself, and the interactions they have with each other and the interaction they have with their father. And it's sort of got this like, succession type vibe in the project and you know we have an amazing composer who uh, you know sort of got inspiration from you know, the tv show but also it is a real life succession drama who is the successor to donald trump and you know, it, it's it's a really fascinating yeah you know insight into their psyche and you know whilst i'm not saying that we've uh, you know, we, we've sort of penetrated through years and years of media training and this sort of facade they put on there are real moments, I believe, that are there, which are unique and that other people or people, just people in general haven't seen. Alex, you presumably, the kind of filmmaker you are, you wanted to portray them as real people, as human. 
What surprised you about what you learned about their personalities as you made this film? Yeah, so just in the point about you know, them sort of portraying them as real and human. I mean, the truth is that they are. And, and people are, you know, one of the things that I was waiting to hear from people whilst we were making this, you know, the, the accusation that we may be humanizing them. But my response is, is that they actually are human. We're, we're not, if anything, they might actually try and remove their humanity when they're on television or doing their sort of sound bites and their, their, you know, whatever they do. What I was trying to do is show the fact that they really are human. And perhaps that's even more terrifying. But you know, in terms of, of what the you know of what we show, and what surprised me is that I mean, the three of them are very different, right? So like I think Eric is someone who is a, a very I mean, it was almost like he was stuck in this weird place where he all he wants to do is is look after his father and do everything he can for his father, but at the same time, he's not that vested in the politics, whereas Don Jr absolutely is vested in the politics, I would say, far more substantially than his siblings and, in fact, his father. And then you've got Ivanka, who has been you know, in the media all her life, and it's very difficult to sort of see the, the real person because she, you know, she, she talks in like sort of sound bites and it's quite rehearsed. And, uh, and I think that was quite tricky to, to get through, to sort of to pass. But my pitch always was the same thing, which was like, you know, I'm here to let you speak. And, you know, you essentially been complaining that no one does. I mean, one of the things I remember someone was saying, one of the kids was saying to me was how people have written books about them, but they've never actually met them. And all the things they say isn't true, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously I'm sure that the authors of these books have sources and they probably are true, but they were complaining how, you know, they had never been, these people, these authors had never actually met the, the children. Well, here I am. I'm eating you. you know, tell me what you want to tell me. And they would give me whatever access they wanted to give me. And they would answer the questions they wanted to, to ask, you know, to answer. And I wouldn't, my approach was never to act in a prosec you know, prosecutorial manner, right? Like, isn't I, well, this isn't me trying to change their minds. or this isn't me trying to uh, attack them. You know, at the end of the day, this is a long form documentary. I ask a question, they give an answer. And um, I'm not there to try and help them give a better answer or try and, you know, tell them why they're wrong. You know, they're, they're big boys and big girls. They, they, they know what's right and what's wrong. And if they don't, then that's very problematic. And I think an audience will be able to come to their own conclusions as to whether or not their answers are you know, profound or, in fact, uh, incredibly you know, sort of materialistic and, and, and not true. Let me ask you a question. Did you see their answers change over time? You began filming in September of 2020 and you filmed all the way up and past January 2021. Did their answers change? Did they uh, incorporate anything from January 6th into their perspective about how they had conducted themselves? Yeah, I mean, no, they didn't. And that's what was quite shocking. The fact that the events that took place you know, just before they left office, just didn't, at least they didn't give any indication to me that it registered substantially, you know, other than Eric sort of saying, I don't want to, you know, he says on camera, when I ask him about talking about January 6th, he goes, I don't want to talk about it. Or he goes, let's skip the 6th. And, you know, for me, it's like, well, you know, here's an opportunity to actually sort of set the record straight, you know, put your position out there. Was it something that was acceptable? Was it something that you have any responsibility for? And you know, rather than engaging in that question, all he wanted to do was to sort of double, triple, or even quadruple down on his father's position, which is that the election was, was stolen. And you, know, you can see it in the way he speaks about that particular subject, how, how passionate he is in the fact that you know, his father's right. And that's something that they all have, all three of them, they never change. We actually have the clip of Donald Trump talking yeah. about January 6th from your film. Mark, you want to play it? Can we talk for a minute about January 6th? Yeah. Well, it was a sad day, but it was a day where there was great anger in our country. The people uh, went to Washington primarily because they were angry with an election that they think was rigged. A very small portion, as you know, went down to the Capitol and then a very small portion of them went in. But I will tell you, they were uh, angry from the standpoint of what happened in the election because they're smart and they see and they saw what happened. And 
I believe that that was a big part of what happened on January 6th. What did you make of that? I've probably heard that clip, I know, 400 times, right? And every single time I hear it, especially when I'm hearing it, because it's quite unusual to hear it and not see it, right? Because I've only ever seen it from that, but the audio. It put, I mean, it gives me goosebumps, right? I mean, it's like this is the president in Mar-a-Lago after he's left office. And I'm asking him about January 6th. And it's not combative, you know, it's, it's quite, you can sort of hear my voice, I'm quite sort of sympathetic in a way. You know, here's an opportunity for you to sort of, you know, say something that could possibly be, you know, acceptable. And not only did he say something that wasn't acceptable, I, I think what he said was just absolutely horrific. I mean, at the end of the day, he said the reason why those people went into the Capitol was because they think, he actually says, I think that they think because the election was stolen, right? But who told him? that the election was stolen. As in, he's basically you know, sort of setting the record straight that the reason they were there was because they believed that the election was stolen. And he then goes on to call them smart. I mean, yeah, you, that, that's just an absolute admission of his responsibility with respect to January the 6th. Alex, you told the New York Times that you went into this project not believing that Trump actually believed the election was stolen. But then after finishing the project, you 100% believed that yeah. he believed the election was stolen. So, yeah. and even even now uh, that you've seen, you know, all of the testimony in the January 6th investigation with, you know, so many people in his inner circle over and over and over telling him that he had lost the election, there was no wide-scale fraud, enough fraud to change the outcome of the election. How do you account for the fact yeah. that he he was so stubborn about about holding that position. Donald Trump is not a rational player. I mean, he just is. You can't have a conversation with him in the same way that you can have a conversation with most other people. He is somebody that lives in a different reality. He had started the lie about the election back in 2016. What I saw after the first interview with him in the White House was that he now became someone who believed in his own lie. And that is a person who is delusional. That is a person who is incredibly dangerous because you can't debate with that person. There is no way that anybody can persuade Donald Trump that he's wrong. And this is something that's characteristic of him all the way through his life. And the series goes into this in the sense that he will never accept that he done, he's done anything wrong. He will always double down. He's always right. And it's always somebody else's fault. And so this idea of trying to rationalize with a man who lives in, yeah, I mean, as he lives in cloud cuckoo land. He's sitting in front of, you know, in an interview in Mar-a-Lago saying that he's sitting in front of a portrait, an actual oil painting of himself, you know, sort of painted 25, 30 years ago, you know, in like a golf outfit. I mean, I actually asked him about that at the end of the interview. I was like, you've got to tell me about this painting. I mean, this is a guy who literally has paintings of himself in his house. I mean, he's just not normal guy. I mean, yeah, it's just extraordinary. And so now, am I saying that he has uh, the sort of intent in what happens on January 6th? No, I mean, that's for others to, to decide. You know, am I saying that he is uh, a, a, a bad father? No, a bad father or anything like that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying purely with respect to my interactions with him, right, that I had, he's not a rational player. And therefore, the idea that anyone, including me, can persuade him of the fact that he's wrong. I mean, I said this, I think, on CNN the other day uh, with, Mark, uh, with uh, Jim Acosta. And, and uh, I was like, when I interviewed him in the White House, the Attorney General had given his statement to AP about four days earlier. So the Attorney General had investigated all the conspiracies and came to the conclusion there was not. The idea that this British guy in the White House is going to somehow persuade the sitting president of the United States that I'm right and he's wrong is obviously not going to happen. And to me, that was horrifying and, and terrifying. And, and that's why I, I, I expected the events of January 6th to happen. I mean, it was just an inevitable conclusion to, uh, to the insanity that had been taking place you know, in, the, in the weeks earlier. Are you saying you expected violence yes, before absolutely. it happened? Absolutely. I said it the day before. I said to my Director of photography, Michael, I was in the hotel. We were in the elevator. I said to him, Trump is going to get them to march on the Capitol. It was so obvious. This was his last hurrah. He had this, obviously had this ridiculous idea 
that intervening in this ceremonial process of certifying these results could somehow prevent President Biden being inaugurated. So there was obviously going to be some, in, he was obviously an attempt to try and intervene. And the day before, two days before in Georgia, he was saying, I hope Mike Pence comes through. Otherwise, I'm not going to like him very much and all his sort of usual sort of like, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink, mafia type rhetoric. This is, it wasn't a surprise. I mean, look, a lot of the time when surprises happen or when things you expect happen, they still feel shocking, right? I mean, the idea that the United States Parliament, right, yeah, the Congress of the United States is going to be ransacked by Americans yeah, is just absolutely you know, insane when you think about it, right? But when you're telling 75 million people their vote didn't count, and the guy that's saying it is the incumbent president of the United States, like, what, what, what you expect is going to happen. So you expected it. You'd been spending a lot of time with Trump. You'd been attending a lot of rallies. Is it reasonable to believe that Trump himself also expected it? I think it's unreasonable for him to say that he didn't. Tell us about your interactions with the January 6th committee. When did they first reach out to you? What do they seem interested in? I believe you've testified, you've, you've been deposed uh, in private. Give us a sense of what they think you have that is of interest to them. So I, I don't know exactly what's of interest to them. Uh, and I wouldn't want to sort of speculate you know, with regards to their own investigation. But what I can say is that here is a contemporaneous account on certain occasions of material that no one has seen or uh, has ever really done you know, before. So I think for them or for anyone to be able to see what was going on in his mind at these various junctures is interesting. Seeing, uh, I mean, I think from, from my perspective, what we captured on January the 6th, obviously you know, we were not with the family or the president on that day. We were always intending to cover that particular day you know, from you know, the outside. And it was, uh, and I think the footage that we have because of our, you know, because we had sort of anticipated something like this to happen is extraordinary. And I think that some of the material that eventually people will see will most probably become the iconic sort of pictures and uh, sort of, you know, yeah, the iconic pictures that will illustrate this, this day, you know, it, for history. I mean, it, it really is, there are moments during that, that riot which really is unique. And there's, there's sort of nothing really comparable to it. And that's pretty extraordinary. Sorry, Alex, can you just elaborate on that? Because you said you were not with the family or with Donald Trump on the day. You were on the Capitol grounds. Where were you? So we were at the Ellipse. Uh, it was actually interesting. And all the rallies that we had previously attended with the president, we'd always had access to what they call the buffer zone, which is very, very close to the, well, right up against the stage where the president speaks. This particular event, we were not given access to the buffer zone. I don't think anyone did, because he was behind this bulletproof sort of glass or plastic or whatever. So we were actually in the press pen, which was actually a very interesting experience, because I'd never been in the press pen before throughout the election and the events that took place after. And Trump always does his usual anti-press message. And it was a huge crowd. Um, I mean, the president likes to talk about how big the crowd was. I mean, I don't know how many people were there, but it was very big. And people were screaming. It wasn't big enough for him, as we learned yesterday. <laughs> indeed, indeed, yeah, indeed. They were keeping all those people with weapons out. Right? Exactly, right? Exactly. And so there we are so, you know, in this press pen, only had 40-odd press people in this press pen, and everyone's screaming uh, at us. And that was a pretty scary moment for me. So that was interesting. Is that I had not actually had that experience before. But yeah, we, we covered that rally. And then at, uh, so the night before, obviously, I said to Michael, we, we said we had planned for this to get violent. So he had equipment that he needed for, you know, to cover the actual rally, which he obviously wouldn't need if he was going to go mobile with the camera. So the plan was I would take that equipment to my car, move the car as close as I could to the Capitol. You know, the idea being I could sort of you know, extricate him and, you know, if it got sort of violent. I mean, the plan didn't really work in the sense that I did take the equipment to my car, but yeah, by the time he was there, it was obviously completely chaotic and there was no way of really reaching him. And the phones went down. You know, I couldn't sort of communicate with him at all uh, until uh, you know, the police sort of managed to, to regain control. But it was, it was an extraordinary event. One of the things I remember very clearly is that I was down below and there were lots of people surrounding my car. And it was this, and loads of people had come from different states. And there were the native 
DC people living you know, in their apartments and they're seeing all these people that are protesting against the election and they were screaming at each other and they were like, get out of my state, you know, go back, you know, go home. And it was just, it was it, people crying like in their apartments because they were very scared of what was going on down below. So it was fascinating to see that perspective and also how it, it progressively changed, right? The people marching, you know, you're talking about people who were clearly wanted to be violent, who were riled up by the speeches that had preceded this, the, the event. But also there were children with their parents and there were people, you know, sort of playing instruments and people in, in costumes. So it was a, a really odd situation, you know, sort of witnessing. And then obviously, you know, it turned very violent, but there was certainly an undercurrent of emotion that had already existed for sure, I mean, absolutely prior to that event, but it was just absolutely you know, exaggerated by the rhetoric that was coming out of the people that were speaking on that day. I actually believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I wonder if there's ever been an occasion where a president of the United States has cursed in public on purpose, because I will never forget that moment. I was so taken aback when he used the word bullshit in that speech. He said piles of bullshit or something like that, you know, and I, and then everyone started cheering and they were going, no more bullshit. And it was just like, how is this happening? So let me ask you a question. You you went to a lot of rallies. You were at that rally. It, you, your comment about Trump using the word bullshit really sort of says something to me. What what is Trump's hold over the people who attend his rallies? What is the you've got this outsider's perspective. What is the, the hold that he has? I mean, the, the, the closest thing I, I can come to is sort of the similar hold that these populist, somewhat totalitarian type individuals have. You know, he is able to tap into sort of the base instincts of people, right? The, the, the things that really get people angry, like the without explaining and, and trying to, uh, you know, try and help. He'll just he'll just go straight to the the core of an issue and just exaggerate that. Does that make sense? He sort of goes to people's worst thoughts and gives them the right to not just be thought, but to be expressed and to be vocalized. And you know, when people say things like, "You don't need to listen to him," he's the fucking president of the United States of America. I mean, like, sorry, pardon my language. Isn't like, what do you mean you don't need to listen to him? I mean. And, and certainly, like these people, also voted for him as well. So of course, they admire him and they think he's, you know, he has their best interests at, at, at heart. I mean, really, he has their best interests at heart, and you know, his supporters died on that day because of because of him. And, and I mean, I, and look, I, 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 let me just say one thing, which is, you know, this film is a very fair portrayal of the events that took place, and I have no skin in the game politically. But this idea that you know you you, you can be sort of objective with respect to the events of January 6th and with respect to this insanity of him having won the election. It's just absurd. I mean, like, you know, I, I totally appreciate that American you know, journalists and politics, et cetera, you know, there's a difference here than there is in the UK in terms of I, I objectivity and opinion or whatever. But when it comes to this particular event, you, you can't. It, it just isn't a world in which a person should hide behind any sort of journalistic or objective position, as in, it's like saying, oh, I'm not going to make an opinion about what color the sky is because I want audiences to make that, you know, make that decision up themselves. I mean, it's just a bit silly, really. We understand you've also been subpoenaed by the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, for her investigation in Georgia. Tell us about that. What in particular they seem interested in and what you have that's relevant to the Georgia investigation. I don't. I don't know. I, I. I don't want to sort of speculate too much uh, with you know again an ongoing investigation. And this obviously is, I believe, a criminal investigation as well. All I can say is, is that on television I have mentioned about one of the things that Donald Trump was saying, re, you know, his position on the election, and he spoke a lot about Georgia, and he spoke about how the only way that he will be successful in his attempts to win in Georgia is to have signature verification. And he says that all he wants is the Republican governor and secretary of state to reopen the ballots and match up the signatures. And therefore, it will prove that he is correct. 
And he said the reason they're not doing it is A, because they're scared and, uh, and B, because they're stupid people. And then he then goes on to say that what they should do is give it to the Georgia legislature and they'll do what he wants because they agree with him. And that, again, was quite extraordinary where you have a, a president of the United States clearly suggesting some sort of intervention by other elected officials with respect to the election. Do you recall if you were with him on uh, on January 2nd, uh, which is the day that uh, he made that infamous phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State when he asked for just one more vote? So I was not with him, but what I just said happened before that. So I've always felt that the sort of the psychology and the, uh, the, his position you know, was already quite clear in his mind about a month earlier. But just picking up on that, you know, there's been this whole issue of the fake alternative electors that were being anointed by themselves in states uh, around the country, Georgia being one of them on December 14th. Did Trump seem aware of that process and the idea of getting these alternative slates of electors selected? No, not, not in my interactions with him. No. He was much more concerned about the, uh, you know, the, the signature verification and the number of ballots and, and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't about uh, those sort of those points. Have you turned over, I should ask, presumably they want to see, they in Fulton County and the January 6th committee has wanted to see your footage. Have you turned over everything to both of those entities, January 6th and Fulton County? So we, we've complied with uh, both subpoenas or are complying. I mean, Georgia just came through. I said the other day, I'm basically collecting subpoenas these days. So we're sort of you know, <laughs> just de- dealing with all this. You can wallpaper your uh, yeah, I mean, honestly. Them. I mean, yeah, it's just absolutely extraordinary. I mean, the idea that what we've documented could potentially be used in some sort of criminal investigation in a former president of the United States of America is just something that I never thought. I mean, hearing anyone say that is extraordinary. But the fact that I'm saying that is just something that is not really I can't really comprehend. Have you been subpoenaed by the U.S. Justice Department or are you expecting to be? Uh, as I have not, uh, but um, but if we are, we will you know we will work with them and and comply with with, uh, with any legal subpoena that we get. Uh, so there's from... been no no outreach from the Justice Department. No, as far as I know. And uh, when you are interviewed by the well, you've been in- interviewed by the January sixth committee. Are you have they told you that they may might want to ask you to testify um, in person? Uh, they haven't made any uh, sort of. They haven't made any. Um, comments about that at all. As in, I, I, I mean, the interview I did with them is what they call a transcribed interview. So uh, I, they have the right to use that in, in any uh, hearing. You mentioned uh, before uh, Eric Trump, one of the characters in your film. We actually have a clip from Unprecedented of a conversation, a cell phone conversation Eric Trump is having with another person about Florida. Mark, why don't we play that and um, then we can get Alex's reaction to it. Oh, good, yeah. Hey, listen, you're in a good state that has a good governor and has a great lieutenant governor and we love her and, uh, and uh, you've got a great attorney general and there's going to be no games in your state, which is nice. It's very different than... Uh, than some of them out there. So um, now you're you're very fortunate. Thank you, thank you. We'll keep praying. We love you. Thank you so much for uh, for all you do, and uh, thanks for the generosity. Now he's saying in there that Florida is a great state, not like some of the others. What should we make of that, if anything? That's the September 29th conversation that Eric Trump is having. I mean, people can make of that what they want. I mean, you know, I. I don't know, you know is the answer to that question. I mean, it's, it's an interesting conversation. He's saying how, I think the word he used actually in the, in the conversation was that there won't be any games you know, in right. your state. And I think that's sort of you know, uh, an unusual thing to say, but perhaps based on all the sort of evidence and things that have come out in recent you know, days and weeks, et cetera, that it makes that particular conversation more uh, interesting, uh, maybe unfairly so, or, or, or maybe it was always interesting. I mean, my personal opinion 
from what I understand, and I'm not going to say I'm at all I'm an expert on American politics, but if there was one state where there have been previously issues before, it was Florida in 2000. So I think it's somewhat interesting to think that Florida was going to be the one state where there wouldn't be issues. But this is speculation, and I don't want to engage too much in, in that. Uh, I would say I'd leave other people to, you know, to come up with their own conclusions. I'm sure that it was a benign conversation, but who knows? Uh, yeah, I, I would, like I said, I really I don't know the answer to that question at all. So the film, Unprecedented, is going to air on the Discovery Channel. Tell us when people will actually be able to watch it. So it's actually going to be on Discovery Plus, which uh, I'm Discovery not sure. Plus. I, I, uh, Discovery Plus. Discovery so, uh, Plus is uh, remains to be seen exactly when. Uh, I think that there are conversations happening right now. I'm sure it will be on a screen very soon. Uh, I have no doubt. <laughs> I think there's a few people that want to see it. <laughs> Alex, uh, and, and to that point, tell us how this experience, uh, being finding yourself in the middle of this spectacle and hugely important story, not just a spectacle, has changed your life. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's mind-boggling what's happened in the last sort of eight days or so. I mean, I was saying this to, to a couple of people, I think last Monday, I had 112 followers on Twitter, of which the majority of them were probably my family. And now, you know, I think there's just under 40,000. And then the clip that I put on there with uh, President Trump moving the water glass around has had about three and a half million views and lots of different you know, people have been playing it on their, on their shows. So, you know, there's that, plus the fact I have you know, a, a, an armed security guards outside and and uh, you know, people sort of saying all sorts of horrible things on, I mean, no, scary things online. Uh, and, and, and yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's just extraordinary. I mean, I, to be in the midst of one of the most sort of you know, um, politically sensitive investigations probably since Watergate is something that I haven't really been able to conceptualize, to understand, comprehend. Uh, so I've sort of just... Uh, Winging it, as they say, to the best of my ability. You will uh, no doubt get uh, lots more followers once this pod goes uh, live. Um, but it has been um, certainly an extraordinary experience uh, for everybody. So, Alex, I want to um, thank you again for joining us. The film is unprecedented, and we are all eager to watch it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. 